Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Charlene Goff, our retail banking correspondent, Daniel Schaefer, investment banking correspondent, and Sam Fleming, our financial policy correspondent. This week, we'll discuss the latest regulatory advances in the US, where the Volcker rule has been scripted, and in Europe, particularly in the UK. We'll also look at the latest woes for the UK's part-nationalised banks, RBS and Lloyds, as yet more fines are imposed. And finally, Ireland's banks in the wake of Ireland's exit from European bailout status. First to that regulatory story, Daniel, you've been looking at the whole Volcker rule passage in the US. Where are we at in that whole process and why has it taken so long? This is something that's been four or five years in the making. Well, the main reason why it took so long, it's been part, obviously, of the Dodd-Frank regulation in 2010 and now three years down the line. Finally, by the five main regulators, it's been approved and drafted, the final version of it. The Volcker rule is this rule that was authored by the famous ex-Fed governor, Paul Volcker, and it simplistically bans banks from betting their own funds in so-called proprietary trading. Yeah, and it has obviously led to a huge outcry in the banking industry. And we had a very long drawn out consultation period and a lot of letters being sent by the banking industry to the regulators and the legislators. And now after three years, they finally have come to a conclusion on it. And we now have a rule book that's 1000 pages long after all this long consultation and after many amendments to it. But what we've got now basically is a rule that says banks aren't allowed to do proprietary trading, but they can. And that's a big concession to the industry, which was very worried about the liquidity for the markets. They are allowed to do market making if it is to hold inventory for if it is connected with reasonable expectations to client orders in the future. And the big question, how do they prove that either way? Yeah, indeed, that's going to be a huge issue going forward. And I think there's going to be a lot of spats with the regulators about that going forward. But from an industry perspective, although there's been now Again, obviously, there's a lot of screaming and shouting about it and people saying it's now become so complicated that it's going to be difficult to monitor. It's going to be very erratic. In fact, the rules aren't too bad for the banking sector. Firstly, the implementation period has been pushed out until summer of 2015. So banks have got one year longer to actually implement the rules. Secondly, one thing that has dropped from the rules is that what was considered first was that CEOs would be first to basically guarantee compliance with the rules, which obviously would be from a liability perspective, a huge issue. And that's now being watered down as well. So on average, if you talk to bankers and analysts, they're actually saying we didn't like the rule in the first place, but actually it's now not going to be too bad for the sector. It's not such a big deal. I guess comparable in that sense with versions of the Volcker rule that have been introduced or are in the process of being introduced in Europe, and namely in France and Germany, where banks 
generally seem fairly relaxed about things. We've got a different route in the UK. And Sam, you've been looking at the final process of the passage into law of the UK's various reforms, notably anchored around this Vickers Commission principle of ring-fencing retail banks. But it goes a lot further than that, obviously. It does. What happens today, Monday, is passage of the Banking Reform Bill, which brings the ring-fence concept into law. That should go through the House of Lords today. What that means then is actually quite a long amount of legal wrangling over the details of the reform, because then a lot of the detail gets enacted in secondary legislation, which enacts the exact parameters of the ring-fence, and that won't happen until next year. And that's really where a lot of the battles will be now as banks try and shape their businesses around the parameters of the ring fence and ensure that they can do from within their ring fenced units a fairly broad range of business. The big questions are what kind of services can they provide for small business customers? Derivatives and trade finance are two areas where there are restrictions on ring fenced banks' ability to offer these services. And there are concerns that perfectly normal bits of financial business could be carved out of a ring fenced bank's array of products. And also the ring fenced bank's ability to do business with other financial institutions will be curtailed. Sounds fine in principle. In practice, it's going to be quite difficult to define this. For instance, the British Bankers Association is currently arguing that as the draft secondary legislation is put together, they wouldn't actually be able to take out, in certain circumstances, buildings insurance on their own premises. All this stuff obviously will get ironed out, or a lot of it. That's clearly an anomaly. But there are some quite significant questions to be answered in this process. Yes, as ever, the rules look fine in principle, but in practice, not necessarily so. We should move on to our second topic, which is the latest woes of the UK's part nationalised banks, particularly Royal Bank of Scotland, but also Lloyds to an extent. Charlene, last week was a particularly bad one for RBS, wasn't it? Yeah, it was just a string of stories emerging for them. Primarily, they lost their finance director, Nathan Bostock, who'd only been in the job 10 weeks. So big shock for them, big loss for the new chief executive who was hoping to rely on Mr Bostock to a large degree to form the internal bad bank that he's in process of setting up within RBS. So big loss there, although he will be seeing out his notice, so he will be there for some time to come, possibly up to a year. And he's moving to Santander to take up the position of deputy chief executive. So to another big rival. And then that announcement came the night before RBS was hit with another big fine of $100 million for potentially breaching sanctions. And that's the latest in a string of UK banks that have been penalised over that. Yeah, notably Standard Chartered went to war really with the regulator over that similar issue a year or so ago. But RBS seems to have taken it rather with greater equanimity. <laughs> it's say. used to it. Yes. And that followed another fine that we had a week earlier for several hundred million for manipulating Eurobor rates. So it's just been a relentless stream of problems for the bank again. And for Lloyds, they've been rather the golden boy of British banking for some time now, especially recovering business there, rampant increase in the share price and so on. But they too were hit last week. Yeah, and a big issue for them. They were fined £28 which financially is a lot smaller, but it was actually a record fine for breaching UK retail banking rules. Yeah, and we haven't seen this kind of thing before. This is basically over the financial bonus structures effectively in place for their salespeople going back a few years, but not that long, actually. No, exactly. And actually, that was the real critical point of this. They were fined for their practices right up until March 
2012, so well into the reign of Antonio Ottosorio, who since his arrival at Lloyd's, chief executive, has said that he's cleaned up the bank, he's prioritising the customer, and this was a serious failing in that regard. And what were the problems with these bonus structures? Well, they were just completely distorted and skewed and were incentivising all the wrong behaviour. They were a real aggressive push on branch sales and telephone centre staff to just sell as many products as they could, whether they were suitable for customers or not. And this particular fine related mainly to uh, insurance and investment products that were flogged very aggressively by other banks as well as Lloyd's. But Lloyd's was particularly egregious in the way it sold these products. There was colour in the statements of these kind of ground in hand schemes whereby staff would get a £1,000 one-off bonus if they hit certain targets. They could be subject to very extreme salary cuts and demotions if they didn't hit the targets. And once they had gone down the rungs of the ladder, it would be very difficult to claw back up. So people seeing their salaries halved if they missed these targets, and that was incentivizing them to sell the products to themselves, to their families, to their friends, whether they needed them or not. Lloyds have said that they've cleaned that up now. They've relegated these parts of the bonus schemes that link directly to sales to a very small proportion about five percent but they haven't gone as far as other banks so hsbc barclays which have eliminated um, them all which have eliminated them all together it's lloyd's and rbs that still have these sales targets as a albeit small but still a way that they incentive their branch staff interesting let's move on to our final topic for the day just a brief word on ireland ireland having emerged over the weekend from the special bailout mechanism that they took advantage of several years ago now from the EU. Obviously, it's a great symbolic moment for the country. What does it mean for Ireland's banks? Well, Ireland's banks are still in a bit of a mess, really, and this doesn't change a huge amount for them. They are still looking pretty precarious, particularly on their capital, with analysts saying they've got some of the lowest capital ratios in Europe. And these banks, like many others, are facing potentially brutal stress tests next year. So the big fear now is that they're going to have to raise even more capital. At the moment, the two biggest lenders, Bank of Ireland, Allied Irish Banks, just about hit the minimum capital requirements. But there has already been noises coming out of the Central Bank of Ireland that particularly Bank of Ireland may have to raise more capital as it takes a tougher view on provisions for its bad loans. So things still looking pretty tricky, but improving. Both those two biggest lenders are expected to be loss making this year, but analysts increasingly expect them to be profitable over the course of 2014, perhaps even in the first half for Bank of Ireland. But still stresses, I mean, the mortgage market in Ireland is still pretty dire. The provisions are still increasing, arrears are still increasing, everything's still looking a bit shaky. So will those prospects of a difficult time ahead, but potential recovery be enough, do you think, to persuade private sector investors to put the money into these banks, which are still benefiting from a lot of government funding, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, I think there's quite a big difference in views between Bank of Ireland and Allied Irish Banks. So Bank of Ireland, the government stake is now down to 14%. And there's some talk that that could be sold off potentially next year to private investors. AIB is still basically 100% owned by the government. And there doesn't seem to be on the horizon any sign that that's going to be reduced anytime soon. That could lead to more woes for the government in terms of if that bank does need more capital. Exactly. I mean, I think that's the thing. It's good news for the economy. It's good news for the government that they've freed themselves from the bailout, but they're yet to draw a line under the banking crisis. And they could be holding particularly AIB and permanent TSB, the third domestic lender for several years to come. Very good. That's it for this week. 
All that's left for me to do is to thank Charlene, Daniel and Sam for their contributions and to thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by John Byrne Murdoch. We'll be taking a Christmas break now for a couple of weeks, but we'll be back on Monday, the 6th of January. Until then, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.